Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. I know it's very hard for you to believe, but um, this week I didn't get to go to Limitless. Pastor Becca was there. She did a fantastic job with the team. Shall we give them some thank yous for that? Thank you for that. And we've heard all of the stories, and um, it's, well, not all of them. The beginnings of those things are happening in people's lives. But I was invited to Northern Ireland to speak at a similar kind of thing. It was a youth event called Relentless. And um, I have this tendency with words that kind of camp on them for a little while and wanting to sense what the Spirit of God wants to say. And um, I feel that there's two things about these two events. They're actually the same event. They're just called slightly different things that we need to pay attention to. When you put a name or assign a name to a particular ministry or indeed a, a mission, and that's indeed what's happened this week, it's a mission to young people, what you're saying is, God, I want you to look at what's available here and make it so clear to us that there are no limits. Make it limitless for us. Wouldn't you love to live in the reality of the limitless power, dominion, and glory of God? Amen. But you know, it's not just available to young people. That limitless power, that unstoppable, unfathomable reality of the goodness and the greatness of God is actually for anyone who walks with Jesus. We're all invited to live with our eyes and our hearts yearning and longing for, positioned and postured towards the God of the impossible, who does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. If your faith needs an upgrade today, ask him. If you need God to stir hope in your heart today, ask him. Because there are no limits to what God can do. Someone say amen. amen. God is limitless. He's not confined by politics or the weather or the conditions of our world. God lives and breathes and has his being above and beyond all of those realities. And while you and I live with limits, God has no limits. And God does for us the limitless invitation he gives to us to think about, to pray into, and to consider how we can partner with that. I don't know about you, but I think I'm so conscious of my own weakness and I need to become more aware of his greatness. Would you say amen to that? I'm so aware of my brokenness, but I need to become completely and utterly smitten with his greatness. And when I see him as he truly is, I start to live differently. So there's an upgrade available to anyone this morning. If you want to know the limitless God that's speaking into the hearts and lives of our young people, that has no parameters on all that is possible and available, then lift your voice and say, Amen. I will receive that. In Northern Ireland, their, their particular event was called Relentless, and it was a weird thing for me. I've not been in a youth meeting for thousands of years, as you can tell, and um, I've got this kind of way of thinking that I wanted the music to be a certain way, I wanted the atmosphere to be a certain way, and none of that happened. Just before I get up to speak, there are people running up and down the aisles throwing basketballs into a, a slam dunk thing or whatever it's called, and kids screaming and shouting. There was no atmosphere for me to work with in that sense, but I knew the, the minute I stood there that God wanted me to say over the churches in Northern Ireland that it's not them that need to be relentless. They need to come awakened to the truth that He is relentless. You see, whenever I put the onus on me to find God, I will always live with disappointment. But when I understand that he is the seeker in our relationship, all things become available to me. When we lived in Glasgow, the Celts, they don't like the idea of the Holy Spirit being a gentle little dove. That's far too girly 
for some of those robust, kilt-wearing Scotchmen. They wanted a God, the Holy Spirit, who was robust and powerful. And they redefined the thinking around the early church on that in the mystic times in, in, in the Celtic Christianity. They called him the wild goose. The Holy Spirit was the wild goose. Now, I don't know if you've ever been near geese, but they're not exactly placid things. We lived on a farm down in Somerset, for, and the uh, farmer next door, he had about five or six geese. And you didn't need a Rottweiler or a shotgun. Because if you went anywhere near that property, those things would rise up. Let's practice that. Let's just do our best goose face. Now, oh, some of you are so good at this, I must confess. <laughs> they would rise up and they would hiss at you and chase you, you know. And I can understand, for many of us, perhaps we need to understand that the God that we serve is the one who is relentless in pursuing our lives. You may be indifferent to him, but he's never casual about you. You may have decided to camp somewhere and think that's it, but he has an adventure ahead of you. Our God is able to do immeasurably, limitlessly, but he's the one who pursues you. And when you feel you can't pursue him, I want to remind you that that's actually a very good day. Because when you don't do it by human effort or energy, but you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you into victory, you're going to live in Christ's abundancy. That's the reality of what's available to you. So who wants to say yes to the invitation that's set before us today that the God who is relentless will come after us? Yeah, Oh, thank God he's relentless. Because <laughs> some of us are clueless. So it's good that he's relentless. So Father, we pray that you would release the Spirit of God over our lives. The relentless Holy Spirit who will not settle until he has all of us who will not shrink back, who will not submit to our protests and our pretense, but keeps pressing in and pressing past all of the barriers we place up, break every wall in our hearts and lives, Holy Spirit, that we may be fully submerged in the reality of who you are. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. If you have a Bible with you, turn quickly to Matthew chapter 11 for me, please. Last week, we started a conversation on a subject matter that I think is very pertinent to this hour in society. I think, if I'm honest with you, one of the greatest battles that we're facing, and particularly in our young people, is the battle for the mind. Over these last number of years, over and over again, I've watched people's lives become completely and utterly destroyed because something somehow in some way has managed to infiltrate their thinking and they're completely and utterly unable or feel paralyzed or not capable of resisting the temptation to carry on thinking in certain patterns. Anxiety has become a, current, a, a common occurrence and everyone I talk to who is young has struggled in some level with anxiety. Mental well-being is a huge issue in society and I think if we're honest, if we stand back from that for a moment and look at what that is, we realize that the enemy is on the prowl and he's trying to steal the minds of our young people and we're not without you know, vulnerabilities to those things ourselves. Somehow in this particular season, all kinds of things are happening in people's minds. And, you know, I've talked to one of the young ladies I prayed for at Relentless the other day, and I just touched her. And this is what I said, the Holy Spirit said this to me, to say to her, God is not trying to fix you, he's come to find you. I said, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't listen to what the people are saying to you. 
Don't listen to what your friends say to you on social media. What I didn't know is this particular young lady has been in a terrible place where she felt so condemned and so ostracized by her friends because she didn't look a particular way or act a particular way. And in a second, God broke the power of those anxieties over her life. And she wept and she wept and she wept as she revisited the reality that God would keep those in perfect peace whose mind is fixed and stayed on him. All around us, this pandemic of mental illness is increasing, and God wants the mind of the church to be clear about some things. You see, we can have the mind of Christ, not just our own opinions or our own experiences. We can actually be mindful in the sense that we understand who God is and what God wants to do. And I think one of the invitations awaiting us at the moment comes from this particular passage. Let's read it together and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Can anyone say amen to that? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. May it become real for us. I think last week we camped and hovered around the beginning of this invitation, come to me. And I think I didn't do justice to it, if I'm honest with you, because I actually think that this is more than just a sentence. I think this is an eternal, open-ended invitation from God himself to every human heart. And I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus models how this looks. When Jesus walked on our earth, he ministered to countless tens of thousands of people. Demoniacs were scared witless of him. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't know how to handle them. And broken people like you and I just could not get enough of him. And yet, as you look at the way Jesus lived his life, you start to see the secret of the easy yoke. It would have been so easy for him to get caught up in the politics. Don't you agree? There was a lot of it at the time. It was so easy for him to become distracted by the crowds. I mean, how many of us in this room have preached to 5,000 men, not counting women and children, at any given point in our lives? None of us, probably. But Jesus didn't go after the crowds. He wasn't distracted by the politics. The injustices that he saw. Society was a very difficult time, at a very difficult place, whatever Jesus. The Roman Empire ruled the world, and they, they ruled it with force. They imposed upon people their sets of rules and conditions. And so many people living in that context had nothing left because they had been raped and plundered and pillaged both financially, emotionally, and even physically by the Roman Empire. And they took pride in themselves for doing that. And Caesar was to be feared and revered. And if you didn't bow and call him Lord, you would be killed. And Jesus, living in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this mayhem and all of this injustice, he models for us what I would call the secret of the easy yoke. And here's how he did it. Every time there was an opportunity to be distracted, he went back to his default. And his default was to be with his father, to rest in his father's presence, to abide in his father's goodness. He consistently came home to that reality. In fact, he says this to us, and we need to pay attention to this. I only do what I see the father doing. You see, we want that kind of reality, but we don't live that kind of life. We want God to use us and show us and speak to us and reveal to us. But actually, Jesus models for us how that life works. 
At every given point he had, he went and was on his own in the Father's presence, enjoying the sweetness of intimacy with his heavenly Father. In the New Testament, when it comes to the Matthew's Gospel, and we hear this great and glorious prayer that Jesus is unpacking for us, the disciples come to him and say, look, Jesus, you're different. You, you do things differently. We don't get it. We don't understand it. What is the secret of all that you do? And Jesus points to the Pharisees and the scribes and says, you know, don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes when it comes to being with God or praying to God, for they already have their reward here on earth. What does he mean? He says that they are doing this, this whole journey of spirituality is to be impressive to their, their, their community. They want to look spiritual. You see, I want to say to you, church, there's a big difference between trying to look spiritual and actually being spiritual. And when you walk in a room and somebody truly has been with God, you will know it by the way they live their lives. But you will also know it by the, by the sense of God's presence that's released whenever they begin to communicate. It's not about charisma or talent or the capacity to communicate. What we all want to be around is people who have a substance that's so deep and profound in them that they hardly have to say anything. But when in the walk in the room, miracles happen just because they're there. When they step into a place that's in disarray, God brings order in the name of Jesus Christ. And those kind of people are so impressive in the kingdom of God, but they're not the most obvious candidates because they're not chasing position. They don't want to be seen as people like the Pharisees and the scribes who have it all together. They're people who recognize they're broken and they need God. I want to be a person of that kind of caliber. Does anybody else in the room want to live like that? And Jesus shows us that this coming, this coming to God is not a once in a month time. It's not a once when crisis comes time. It's not, I'll pop in and talk to Jesus about A, B, and C because I have a few problems. It's a consistent referral and deferral to the presence and the person of God the Father. I think it's amazing that Jesus reveals this to us. It's almost like a heavenly dance. I want it to grow in such a place in my heart and life with Jesus that my constant real place to live is not in the public eye or even in a place where you have responsibilities or whatever it is that God calls you to do. I want to live in this place where my, my dance is a movement towards him in everything, a movement to him with everything. So I get up in the morning and I pray, Lord Jesus, I want to see you today. I want to see you, Jesus. I want to be with you today. When I get in the car to go to the offices, I say, God, I want you to move amongst us today. You know, we're busy. There's only Becker and I really on full-time staff. We're busy people. There's, a, there's a, so much to do and so many things to experience. But I want our default to be we choose Jesus. We choose life. We choose your presence over anyone or anything. And you know, if we can become ruthless with this, I believe that God would use our lives to the greatest extent. The problem is for most of us in this room, we wait till Sunday to encounter Jesus. We have Monday right through to Saturday and we can live in his presence consistently and persistently. He is available 24-7. You don't have to wait till you have a problem. In fact, don't wait till you have a problem. You might not have a problem if you go to him now. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me in your thinking. Come to me in your pursuing life, come to me in your decision making, come to me regarding your relationships, come to me regarding your health, come to me regarding your pain and your discomfort. Keep on coming to me, keep on coming to me, keep on coming to me. And here's what happens. 
When we have that default, when we have that position of our heart, we are walking in the presence of God and everything that God wants to do will begin to become apparent to us. We don't have to beg him or indeed plead with him. We will know him well enough to know how he wants to move in the day-to-day living of our lives. How many of you want to come to him more? And notice the qualifications for that journey. You who are weary and burdened. Anybody in the room feeling a little bit weary? Come on, give me a wave. I know you're here. I'm here too. Anybody feeling weary? I can hear somebody saying, well, we weren't until you started preaching. I heard that. I heard that in the spirit. I heard it. I I can pick up. But words of knowledge. Stop it. Whoever you are, Dimitri. Stop it. (laughs) We're all laden down with so much stuff, aren't we? How many of us are laden down with the fact that we just don't feel that we're really living in the fullness of Jesus? How many of us are laden down with the fact that we're conscious that we have brokenness, pain, and even sin in our lives? Anybody weighed down by that? Anybody weighed down with a myriad of disappointments that you've tried with all the gusto you have to circumvent and avoid, but your heart just seems to be saddened by life. Anybody weighed down with that? Come on, talk to me. Anybody weighed down because you prayed for something and it didn't happen? You wanted that breakthrough, that miracle, that relationship, whatever it was, it just didn't happen. Anybody weighed down with that? See, Jesus knows the human heart. He knows us all really well. And we are so accustomed to living with that kind of weight, we don't really ever believe we could truly be free. We're so accustomed to living with a sense of compromise, we don't ever truly believe that we can be wholehearted with God. You know when God said, love him with all of your heart, your mind and your strength, it wasn't God putting burdens on you. It was God making invitations to you. And his promise was to fulfill them for you. I will help you grow. This is what that says. I will help you grow to such a point where you will find that you love me the way I love you. I will do a work in you to such an extent that you will love me with all of your heart. You will adore me with all of your mind and you will follow me with all of your strength. That's God making a promise that he desires to fulfill. But we've taken that invitation upon ourselves. We're trying to live our spiritual lives not in the easy yoke of Jesus, which is intimacy. We're trying to live our spiritual lives with a heavy yoke of responsibility. And Jesus says, I look around and I see all of you. And I say, come to me. In the coming to me, you will find rest. In the coming to me, your burdens will be lifted. In the coming to me, your brokenness will not be apparent. My beauty will outshine it. In the coming to me, your disappointments will turn into reappointments because I have promised you life and life in all your fullness. In the coming to Jesus, we find rest from the weariness of trying to be good spiritual people. And we recognize that without him, Without him, we have nothing. You see, I think Christians don't tell lies. They just sing them. We sing, Christ is enough for me. You see, when Jesus died for you, he paid the price fully for your salvation. I'm going to keep going until somebody wakes up. He paid the price fully for your deliverance. Hallelujah. 
He paid the price fully for all that God promised you, which was an abundant life. And you can't get that life by human effort. You can only experience that life as you place upon the yoke of your heart. You place upon God, sorry, God upon the yoke of your heart, and you make Him your dwelling place. And in that place, you will find that some of these things begin to disappear. I don't believe serving God was ever meant to be the hardship that some of us have turned it into. I don't believe serving God was meant to be, you know, all about discipline. I think it was more about delight. I don't believe that God invited us into something that would, in many, many ways, exhaust us. I think he invited us to someone who would energize us. And that someone is himself. It's an amazing promise, don't you think, from Jesus? An amazing invitation from Jesus. Look at verse 28 for me. Come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look a bit further down. Jesus says in the same verse, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. It seems to me that as you read this, you can't help but fall into the trap of thinking, that doesn't sound like an easy journey. <laughs> when we hear the word yoke, are you telling me, Jesus, that if I come to you, I'll get rid of these burdens, but you will place upon me something else that's even heavier. And I think sometimes we hear these words, but don't think them through. I think what Jesus is offering is not a heaviness, but a joyousness. He's offering a fullness and a blessedness to our lives. When serving becomes anything other than joyous, something's gone wrong. When serving the Lord becomes a duty or a responsibility, something's not right. So let me take you through a couple of things that I've noticed about my life whenever serving becomes problematic. And maybe they'll be of use to you. The first one is this. Serving really does become hard when I have the wrong view of God. See, some people in this room, like me at times, will be serving God because you don't think you're good enough for Him. You feel you have a debt that you're trying to pay. And you work very hard day and night to try and show Him how grateful you are. You're trying to make sure that although He's enough for you, you might be enough for Him. You're trying to earn His love, perhaps, to keep His forgiveness, maybe. Maybe, ultimately, it's about keeping your place in heaven. But go to Luke chapter 18 for me, please, and we'll see a story that I think describes this kind of thinking and the error that we're all falling into from time to time. It's a story of two men. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. I'm going to read from verse 10, actually. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, and this is how he prayed. This is a man who clearly has a, a good sense of self. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. I don't think I'd invite him to a party, do you? God, I'm not like the other people. And he starts to make a list of their problems. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And he points to the other man in the room. He says, or oh, even like this tax collector. And then he goes on to display his virtues, the reasons why he's not like these other people. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. 
So that's one man, the Pharisee, coming into the presence of God and clearly very aware of his spirituality, very refined in his thinking in the order of what he thinks is righteousness or unrighteousness. And then this other man is there in the same room and he's the tax collector. Look at verse 13, it says, but the tax collector was so conscious of his brokenness or his weakness or his lack of spirituality that he stood at a distance. Isn't that what we do when we have an awareness that we're not who we're really pretending to be? Don't we all stand at a distance from God? Don't we all hide in the shadows? Don't we all hope that we'll just get by by being amongst God's people? I think that's an interesting observation. He would not even look up to heaven. This man's awareness of his own sinfulness in comparison to the awareness the Pharisee had of his own righteousness prevented him from even raising his head in praise before the Lord. In fact, it says, but he beat his breast. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but I was raised a Catholic, and so sometimes in the Catholic Mass we'd come to a place of penance, and, and penitence, and we would strike our chest like this to say to God, and I suppose in many ways if you've been a Catholic, you, you know what I mean, to say, God, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're aware of our sin. But imagine being this man and recognizing that you live consistently with that kind of awareness of your sinfulness. And so, of course, what he has to pray is these words, God, have mercy on me. And look at how he identifies himself. Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Some Christians think they're so good at being a Christian. They really do. They think they've got it down perfectly. You know, they've got the go faster stripes in the Holy Spirit. They know the Bible verses inside and out and they live what they believe to be the best possible life they can live. And obviously, if you're that kind of person, your invitations to parties will diminish rather quickly because the minute you step into the room, you make us all very conscious that we're not as good as you. And then there are other people who think they're just never going to be good enough for God. Whatever they do is never going to be good enough for God. And I think in the church, if we're honest with you, we celebrate those people far more than we do the other people who try to live righteously. But I want to suggest to you that those, both those individuals have a wrong view of God. The tax collector thought he could buy God's love by all the things he did, and so he worked really hard. And the sinner thought he would never be good enough for God, so he was always repentant and living with a sense of sorrow regarding his state. But perhaps we could add a third perspective on this. And that is simply this, that when God begins to move and make himself available to us in our lives, whether you think you're a saint or you're a sinner, all knees have to bow to the reality of the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn God's love by hard work. And you don't have to beat yourself up because you're not good enough for God. Because that which you were given was never something you could ever earn or keep by either of those attributes. You were given the gift of mercy and the gift of grace. And it is indeed a gift. And it takes a huge amount of courage to trust that Christ really is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. 
Christ satisfies everything as far as the Father is concerned regarding my salvation. I don't have to add to it by works and I don't have to diminish it by a sense of being overbearing in my ideas of thinking I'm a sinner. Now which one are you? Are you a tax collector full of your own you know, ideologies around earning God's love or are you someone who thinks I could never be good enough for Jesus? Well, if you're serving God and you have any of those perspectives, you're going to find serving Him very, very difficult indeed. Second thing I want to highlight to you is this, is some people serve God to get something from Him. I'll just let that hang in the atmosphere. Now, I know none of you would be guilty of that, but for the benefit of your friend who couldn't make church this morning, listen up. Some people genuinely believe that if I'm going to get a blessing from God, I need to put more effort in. Don't you? Don't you? Don't you? I remember a number of times in my own life I've made pledges to God. Have you ever done this? God, if you just do this, I'll fast until I'm invisible. Have you ever prayed? I mean, that's a ridiculous prayer, but have you ever promised God you'd do something if he would do something? Talk to me. Come on. Have you ever done that? God, I really want that girl as my wife. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Anything. I'll even, I'll even serve on the door. I'll hoover the floor. Pick up the leaves in the car park. God, I must have her. I must have her. And I think the Lord must be thinking, well, I'd like to bless you with the right person. So if you can trust me a little with this, <laughs> you might find that there are other alternatives that might be better suitors. But no, we bargain with God. Years ago, I was listening to my daughter, Emily, who I love dearly. She's watching online as we speak. And um, she used to come up to me and there was this little pattern that became visible. She'd say... Dad, she's only little, she'd say, I love you. Isn't that sweet? And then she'd say, can I have? <laughs> and don't tell me you haven't done that with God. Don't tell me you haven't done that with God. Oh, Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord. Remember, 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 Jesus. <laughs> And I lift my voice to worship you. Lord, I bind Satan. He's resisting. He's resisting me having what you want from me. We've all done it. Go to Luke chapter 15 for me, please. You read here what we know as the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to talk to you about something that happens to all our hearts when we start to see God in this mistaken perspective. You know the story well. There's a younger son in the story and I want to just say up front and honestly to you, so often I've heard this preached as a message for those who don't know Jesus, that are not in relationship with Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that that's not actually the context of this particular narrative. You will notice, as I notice, that both these boys lived in the father's house. They sat at the father's table and they listened to the father's blessings. But both these boys had hearts that were distant from the father. And the younger one, because he couldn't cope with that, he decided to extract himself from the father's house. But before he did, he wished his father dead by asking for his inheritance up front. 
And you know the story. He goes off and he squanders that money and he ends up in all kinds of problems. And where he was somebody with some substance, he becomes somebody who's subject to somebody else with some substance. And that's the journey we all go on when we decide to distance ourselves and fulfill our earthly pleasures here on earth. We become a slave to somebody else who's our master. But the older brother is far more fascinating to me. Because by all accounts, the older brother was the pillar of the house. He was the one to be relied upon. He was probably the one that most people would say, that's a good son. That son serves. That son has a duty to you. That son takes his responsibility very seriously. But I want to suggest to you that both boys wanted the father's money and not the father himself. They just had very different ways of demonstrating that. You see, the older brother wanted and felt he deserved the father's blessing. And if you read the story, you recognize that that becomes very apparent whenever the younger brother comes home. Now, the father rushes out to meet the younger brother. He puts a robe over him. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts sandals on his feet. And he kills the fatted calf. But whenever the older brother hears that this boy has returned to the house, he doesn't come back to the house. He tries to stay away from the celebrations as long as he can. And here's what happens. The father has to go out to speak to the older brother. And when he goes out to speak to the older brother, this is what the older brother says in response. Because this has been building and building and building for years. That son of yours... And look how he speaks to the father in regard to what he thinks he deserves. Have I not slaved for you day and night? Am I not the one who's been here week after week in the church meetings? Do I not tithe to this church? You know, I had a funny moment in Glasgow where someone said to me, can I borrow all of the chairs? I'm having a party. And I said, no. And the lady said to me, I have tithed to this church for the last 20 years. And being quick like I am, I said, oh, I spent that on holidays. We purchased these chairs. They don't belong to you. <laughs> Which went down really badly. But hey, you live and you learn. You live and you learn. You see, you can be in the Father's house. You can be sitting, listening to the Father speak. And your heart can be just as greedy. Even in your duty, even in your responsibility, you can have such an expectation that God owes you something because you have done so much for him. And the older brother says to the father, he says this, have I not labored for you all my life and yet you've never thrown a party for me? What is happening here is this. This boy did all the right things, but he had the wrong attitude. Have you ever done that? And I think sometimes people in their service to God are really genuinely serving because they want something from God. And when God doesn't do what they think he should do, they become angry, disappointed, and bitter, and many leave the faith as a result of it. I want to say this to you with great respect. God owes you nothing. That went well. Why would you think that you have to buy something from God by hard work? Isn't that the mindset of somebody who doesn't know that salvation is a gift that is free? And if God never did a single thing for you, not one more thing, aren't you already blessed to know him? 
Is there anybody in the room who's had your sins forgiven? Talk to me, because I think there's a few of us in this morning. Do you know how pricey that was? Do you know how costly it was for you to have your sins forgiven? I mean, I'm not a bad sinner, but Pastor Becker is ridiculous. And Jesus... (laughs) Even her, Jesus has forgiven. I think it's the other way around. I don't want to be like the older brother that thinks that I have to do something to get something from God. I don't want to live with that expectation that God owes me something because I have invested my time and my energy. You see, the whole thing only works when we understand that it was an invitation of love and from love we should respond to God. Without that, we're just wasting our time. Third thing, some people are serving God to pay him back. I remember sitting with this old gentleman in a church somewhere it was pouring with rain outside and he worked the car park and he'd worked it for 30 years and goodness knows there wasn't an inch of that car park that he couldn't park a car in I mean he'd reverse us in he'd reverse us out but he'd get sorry Stanley this is your ministry isn't it (laughs) in in part and um, you know he used to drive me nuts he drove me nuts this man because if people came to the church for the first time instead of accommodating people who are for the first time he would make sure that they parked in the furthest place away because they weren't part of the church so he said, well all of the people who come regularly they should park up near the front and the people who are just new to us they should park way down the road well you can imagine that's really counterintuitive to somebody that's trying to grow a church and desires to see God bless people who are there and when I sat with him one day and he's just chatting away. I said to him, why do you still serve in the car park? Oh. He said this to me. That literally, that was the shake of the head. It's a bit like when you go to the garage and you say, what's wrong? And they go, oh. You know that's 300 pounds. That shake of the head. <laughs> it's 300 pounds without anybody speaking a word. Oh, we all know what that means. <laughs> and I said, well, just explain it to me because you, you're quite old. you body your movement's not great the rain is terrible what is it that he said well Jesus saved me pastor I said yes I know he said and I must serve him to my last breath and you know when I heard it I thought how lovely and then I thought how ugly how lovely and ugly all in the same breath are you telling me that you do this every week because you're trying to pay Jesus back for what he gave freely to you? Are you telling me that all the hours you've stood on your feet and the abuse that you created and received from people, you put up with because you have to give Jesus something week by week like a heavenly mortgage to pay off your debt to him? And he said, well, yes. I said, well, you're not on the car park next Sunday. I'm on it. Because if anyone's going to get stuff from God, it's going to be me. (laughs) I I stood him down. The man's body was trashed. His heart was bitter. There was no joy in what he was doing. And we all suffered as a result of it. And he did it week by week. And from the outside, it looked like a great thing. What a man of God. But if you're working to pay back your debt, when will you finish When will you know enough is enough? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're done here now. Verse 3, it says this. 
If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have not love, but I have faith that can move a mountain, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Church, if your whole way of thinking is that you serve God to paying back for all that he has done for you, actually what this scripture tells us is it amounts to nothing. You gain nothing from that. See, the only reason to serve God is love. And the Apostle Paul writes here consistently throughout the scripture that that is the place from which we are called to live. Somebody's going somewhere. <laughs> are you looking for spiritual directions or earthly ones? <laughs> Come on, talk to me. Which is it? <laughs> Imagine how God feels when he freely gave himself for your salvation, but you actually think you have to pay him back. Imagine how diminishing that is to the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished. Imagine how difficult it is for God to watch us try and pay for something that we could never ever truly afford. And all the time, this is the truth. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, all of us caught up in this thinking, these incorrect ways of seeing God and trying to operate as servants of God is found to not be true when we look at that scripture because it says that Jesus is the servant amongst us. In fact, you know the story where Peter refused to allow Jesus to wash his feet. And this is what Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, that's the work of somebody who does not recognize the reality of the love and the presence and the passion God has for humanity. We don't want to live with any of these mindsets. We certainly don't want to be the kind of people that think for some reason that we serve God because we're either too bad or we're too good or in fact serve God because we want to get something from him or indeed serve God because we want to pay him back for all that he's done for us. We serve God because he serves us. We give ourselves to him because he has given himself to us. The greatest servant amongst us will always be Jesus. And if I am not serving from a place of love, then that particular service has no value to God whatsoever. Whatever way I seek to justify it. As a pastor, I've had many, many encounters with these truths. I hope they've been of some benefit to you this morning. Please check your heart in these matters. Because if we're serving God out of any of these particular orientations, Serving God will become joyless and difficult and hard and sometimes even seemingly impossible. Jesus says, no, take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Well, God bless you. Have a great week. I suppose I should pray for you because I'm trying to earn my salvation. <laughs> Let's stand together. <laughs>
Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this truth. The man knows no greater love than he should lay down his life for his friends. And in our hearts today, God, we ask for this, which seems somehow impossible. Would you move us from the posture of servants into the place of friendship? For servants do not know the desires of their masters or why they indeed want certain things at certain times. But friends know. Friends know the reasons behind the actions. And Lord Jesus, if you call us your friend, then we want fellowship with you. I ask you, Jesus, that you will make our default always to come to you. There's lots of great people in this room, great advice from all kinds of places on this planet, but no one has the answers like you do, Jesus. And the truth is, Jesus, it's not even what you say, it's who you are. You are the answer. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And if I'm not spending time as a default with you, Lord, I will seek answers and I will run everywhere trying to get resolution to the difficulties I face. And yet, Lord God, my burdens will be heavy and hardship will be real. But when I come to you, Jesus, you allow me to lay those things at your feet and to live in the freedom of intimacy, which always breeds authority. Jesus, I ask you, please, that you would help me not to think highly of myself, like I'm proving something to God or even too lowly of myself that I'm never enough for God. Help me to trust that you have called me to yourself and you say, Lord God, come to me. And I wanna to come to you with that invitation consistently clear in my mind. I'm not coming because I'm too bad. I'm not coming because I think I'm too good at this. I'm coming because you've invited me to come. You've asked me to come and to be with you. Lord Jesus, help us in some of our stinking thinking Lord, destroy the lies that we have bought into because the only reason we can come is because you first came to us. Lord, we are responding out of love to the love that you have demonstrated through your life. Lord Jesus, if I'm serving you because I think I have an insurmountable debt I have to pay back, then Lord, forgive me because I could never give you back what you've given me. How could I ever reflect that generosity to you, Lord, by any act of service? And in spite of my attempts, Lord, to try and be a good person, I always arrive back with the same reality. Lord, I'm weak in places. I'm needy. Your word says, Lord, it's not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. And Lord, I pray your spirit will lead us more and more and more into the life and the love of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, if I am serving you somehow because I think I need to get, to get something from you. Then forgive me, Lord. It's almost like manipulation to think that if I say the right thing, dance in the right way, perform in the right way, that God will do the right thing. You always do the right thing, God. You always do the right thing. I don't have to cajole you or manipulate you. You want to bless me, God. The problem is never you. It's my capacity to receive the blessing. Lord, sometimes the holdup in such matters is because I'm not ready, not that you're not willing. And Lord, sometimes you don't bless me with things I think will bless me because they'll become a curse to me in my life. You have wisdom I don't have. Lord, if some of the prayers I prayed you'd answer, I wouldn't be here today. I'd have been somewhere else married to somebody else. But thank you, Jesus, that you know better than I do. You know better than I do. You know the end before the beginning. And so if your answer is no or maybe wait, Lord, I accept that because you know you have wisdom and authority and revelation over all things. But Lord, I don't want to serve you to get something from you. I don't want to say, I love you, God. Can I have? I want to serve you because 
I'm so grateful and overwhelmingly in love with you. The most supernatural, natural response for me, Lord, is to give my life to you. I want to serve you because you are the joy of my heart. I want to serve you because you are the love that I've searched for all my life. And now it has found me. I will never be the same. And Lord Jesus, I want to serve you because you first loved me. And without that invitation, I wouldn't have any capacity to reflect back to you my love to you. Lord, bless us as we step more and more into this conversation about how to live in the easy yoke. Give us the secrets, Lord, that are hidden in plain sight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, church. Have a great week.